You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and also one step off the grid and the driven, the EV-focused website. And joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK. David, um, I trust you are well. Giles, I'm well and uh, it's also a welcome to our very special guest this week. Yes, it's great to have uh, rejoining us, actually, a, a prior guest, um, Simon Corbell, now the Chief Executive of the Clean Investor Investment, Clean Energy Investment Group. Um, Simon, um, thanks for rejoining us. Thanks very much, Giles. Good to be here and great to join you again, David, as well. Well, look, it's great to have you here because you've played sort of multiple and very important roles um, in the energy transition in Australia, um, first as the um, climate and energy, or maybe both, I'm not too sure which, but with the ACT and sort of yeah. um, just pushing through that um, that landmark achievement of 100% renewables and setting in motion or the other things that have been followed through by your successor, Shane Rattenbury, and also you've played a key role in Victoria as the renewable energy advocate and now have shifted over to the Clean Energy Investment Group. So... Interesting times at the moment because we're seeing sort of politics played out in Australia. We're seeing politics on the international stage with Glasgow, and we're just sort of got this sort of you know the reality of will people invest or not? And sadly, your latest survey from your membership group, which you can probably explain to us more about, is not that confident about investing. In fact, they're not; they're basically not investing, at least not much at the moment. But they've got a bucket load of capital. Who are they? And why aren't they investing? Yeah, thanks, Giles. The the Clean Energy Investor Group is a group of 17 investors in the clean energy sector in the Australian market. And collectively, they hold about 50% of the clean energy generation assets currently operational in the NEM. So they are a very significant group of long-term asset owners. And we're comprised of businesses that both develop and then hold Uh, a position in their assets once they become operational or they are funds who come in and obviously purchase those assets and uh, construct them and and bring them to uh, to operational status and then hold them for that period of their operation. So our members um, have come together as a group because of their concerns around the, the risks associated with developing clean energy assets in the Australian market. Uh, and what our latest survey has confirmed is that despite uh, the federal government's commitment of net zero by 2050, it really hasn't shifted the dial uh, when it comes to investor sentiment. Uh, and our investor members um, have said in, their, in our first uh, quarterly survey that we'll be undertaking uh, every quarter moving forward that they consider the cost of equity risk premium in the Australian market um, has either remained unchanged or in fact has potentially deteriorated. And when we think about that cost of equity premium, you know, it's around 100 to 250 basis points based on a a previous piece of research we've done. And that, that means that Australia is paying more than it needs to 
uh, to uh, get its clean energy assets built. That means consumers are paying more, uh, but it also means that many investors are simply not proceeding with their investments and they are choosing other markets uh, where that risk premium doesn't exist and where it's easier to get projects built. So, you know, I, I, I won't uh, hand back to Giles, but I'll just observe that my work is that a 1% extra on the weighted average cost of capital that investors require is somewhere between 5 and $10 a megawatt hour of extra costs to, to consumers. Yeah, that, that's right, David. And I think, you know, when you think about it as up to 250 basis points, which is within the range that uh, we surveyed our members on when we developed our investor principles document back in August, it's simply unacceptable that an, an economy like Australia that is competing with other OECD markets, North America, Europe, uh, parts of Asia, um, that it's seeing that level of risk premium for investment. It's a shocking level of risk premium. I mean, look, there's obviously other factors as well. Um, a lot of it to do with the sort of the management and sort of some of the details of the market and the transmission, which we've talked about before. But let's just stick for a moment just on the federal policy. Can you explain why the federal government, having sort of you know reached this what they describe as this momentous decision, but others may sort of you know, poo-poo it a bit, um, that's got to net zero by 2050? Why isn't that a trigger for more investment? Because there's no clear roadmap around what decarbonisation looks like in the NEM and the transition through to a fully net zero NEM uh, to enable 2050 net zero economy wide to be realised. You know, we all understand that you don't get to net zero uh, in the last five years of that pledge period. You get to net zero, zero by building out the capability of the economy uh, to be electrified, to be zero emissions. Uh, and to do that, you need to build the generation assets and importantly, the transmission assets well ahead of that time frame. Um, and so we would say as an investor group, we need to be planning for effectively decarbonisation of the electricity supply sector by 2035. You know, so that's just over a decade away. That means we've got to build a lot more transmission much more quickly than we are at the moment. We need to have a very clear time frame around when coal assets are going to exit and when new generation is required. And we just don't have any of that detail yeah. um, in the way the market is developed uh, or run. Yeah, I'll, I'll let David ask a question um, after this one. So. AEMO uh, have a plan, or at least they're producing a plan. It, um, they already have the integrated system plan, which kind of decarbonises the grid by 2040. It's pretty clear now that they're going to come up with the updated plan in a couple of months, which is going to give like a, how that's done by 2035. You've got people like Transgrid talking about a 91% renewables by 2030. You've got the state governments acting um, with their own plans, and particularly in New South Wales. Mm. Why is it important for the federal government to, to be more proactive? Well, it's more important for the market bodies as a whole to be more proactive. And I, I, would, I would disagree with you somewhat in relation to the, the, the importance of the integrated system plan. It is important, but you have to remember that the integrated system plan actually sets out a range of scenarios. And the current scenario that's used for planning purposes um, by AEMO and therefore by the other market bodies in considering transmission upgrade and so on um, is actually a scenario that assumes a plus three to plus four degree uh, temperature outcome in terms of the contribution of the electricity supply sector to Australia's 
decarbonisation efforts. So at the moment, we're using a planning, a market planning scenario that is completely out of line with um, not only our commitments in relation to the Paris Agreement, but certainly well out of line with broader global investor sentiment and broader geopolitical sentiment around how much more quickly we have to do this task. So the federal government has a really important role in, in providing that leadership through to the market bodies along with the states and really achieving a consensus on decarbonisation has to happen more quickly. We need to be planning for that accordingly and adopting a much more progressive planning scenario in the NEM. Uh, and that would send a really clear signal to investors that the market bodies are planning for decarbonisation by 2035. At the moment, their scenario planning does not anticipate that outcome. So, you know, I would say that the people I talk to uh, look at the step change uh, version of the ISP, mm. which indeed was developed mostly before the full New South Wales roadmap was developed. Uh, and But that's not, as you say, necessarily the scenario that actually is adopted for, for formal planning purposes, even though it's, I think, the... Uh, actual scenario that we're on to the to the extent and mm. um, so that's point one in regard to the point that Giles made before about the federal government and why it hasn't changed any investor attitudes it's because for two reasons the first one is it essentially views decarbonisation as in some ways as been achieved in Australia it talks about net zero it talks about carbon capture and Storage for, for coal, for instance, which if you applied it to uh, generation, would simply raise the coal generation, the cost of coal generation a, a lot from where it is now, even assuming it was technically possible. And in fact, uh, the last time I looked, it took about 30% more coal to do carbon capture and storage, the energy you actually mm. use in doing that, uh, than in just producing the generation. And we already know that a wind and solar-based system with some firming is cheaper than than existing coal, let alone new coal, with, with carbon capture and storage. So it's inherently a, an implausible scenario to, uh, to start with. And then it also bets on, you know, uh, what can only be regarded as very risky things like a big hydrogen market in Australia. How can you promote coal and hydrogen at the same time? You know, it doesn't quite make sense. I mean... Uh, so there's there's no sense or logic to it, and at the same time you're appointing a you know resources minister that uh, positively ha doesn't like renewables and makes no secret about it. You know I I don't want to harp on federal politics because I actually think it's in an extent as irrelevant now as it's always been, and I don't actually think, with all due respect, Simon, that the Labor Party's published views as they stand at the moment are necessarily any better. They they're running a small target, and that's fine. Uh, but, you know, uh, in regard to electric vehicles, I look at the, the uh, photograph of uh, Scott Morrison doing, uh, going to Victoria, almost the exact opposite of Bill Shorten last election who went up to Queensland. Now we see Scott Morrison in Victoria with a smiling face uh, refuelling an EV, uh, which is very analogous to the photograph of uh, Barnaby Joyce, you know, turning a sod at, at a wind farm in his electric New England. Uh, it's, a, it's just, it's, you know, my school teacher, Piggy Kane, back in... You uh, 1967 uh, <laughs> used to tell me David Leach when I handed in a blank hand blank book of uh, with no notes in it for my mass homework which I did every week he'd say Leach you, you don't 
you, you don't uh, tell a lie, you act a lie. And that's what those photographs are. They're lies. <laughs> well, I think I just, uh, I'll, leave that, I'll leave that commentary to you, David. But all I would add is I think, you know, when we think about investor sentiment and the importance of the federal government, you are looking at whether there's either headwinds or tailwinds when it comes to investment. And many of our members invest in other markets. You know, they invest in the North American market, they invest in the European market, and their their headquarters are deploying their capital, making an assessment of relative markets and relative risk. And the Australian market has got all the headwinds, and other markets increasingly are seeing tailwinds. So particularly, obviously, with the election of the Biden administration in the US, lots of tailwinds in terms of opportunity for clean energy development and indeed for hydrogen development associated with that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with new tax credit arrangements and so on. So this is, this is, these are factors that investors take into account. And then when you look at the problems with getting connected, the problems with risks of curtailment, all of those issues that are very specific issues of market design, but incredibly important when it comes to whether or not you can predict with confidence the revenues you're going to get from a project if you proceed to financial final Mm. investment decision that is these are the issues that our members are really struggling with and why we need a coming together uh, between the states and the federal government on what we're planning for and the direction we're going in and as you say david at the moment we still see a lot of incongruence there to say the least um, I just, yes, well, look, like, I think you'd be very unfair on Keith Pitt, actually, David. Um, he did notice that solar doesn't generate at night, so I think he's probably spot on on that thing. So, um, but, so, I mean, can we just get back to the year in, in scenario planning? Um, it's true, actually, but other people have actually pointed this out to me, and I probably should take more notice, that, yes, because they are operating on the central scenario, which you say is a, heads towards a disastrous three to four degrees, it's a bit like the IEA sort of central scenarios, um, that sort of increases, it, it creates that uncertainty, it, um, it uh, increases the cost of capital. So if AEMO is saying, on one hand, we're going step changes, David observed, in fact, we're actually going beyond that and quickly, then why the hell is the central scenario is still the planning um, blueprint. Is it because, as you say, the federal government haven't told them to, and the federal government, to be, um, you know, to be honest, hasn't really given the ISP that much amplification? And if that's the case, how do we get that to change? Does it have to come from the federal government or do, um, yeah? Well, it's a good question. Um, and it is the case, as you've pointed out, that the central scenario is the scenario adopted for planning purposes at the moment, including what are the requirements in terms of transmission build-out and the relative cost-benefit in terms of timeliness of that build-out. So uh, I think what it would be fair to say that historically the market bodies have said, well, it's not their role to uh, participate in a political debate about the pace of decarbonisation in the Australian economy. That's the role for governments. Uh, and so they've tried to adopt a much more sort of neutral position, um, conscious of the views of their political masters. And whilst the states uh, collectively now are in a very strong position in terms of the aggressiveness of their decarbonisation timetables, you don't get uh, a change to an, an adoption of a, 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 say, step change planning scenario without the federal government also being in the tent. I mean, it's simply not the case that all the states can agree on one particular approach and the feds adopt a different approach, but because you've got more states than feds, then it's okay. It's not the way it works. You need unanimity. You need consensus across all levels of government. And in the absence of that, 
um, you know, AEMO, the AEMC and others are not going to tread on the toes of their political masters. Um, now, I, I would say that there are reasons we are getting to the point where there are good reasons for the market bodies to give consideration to why they are statutory entities in the first place, why they are independent, why they have protections around their independence, uh, and perhaps think about the leadership position they can provide on planning for a decarbonisation uh, approach in the NEM, which is actually consistent with the reality that we're facing, with the requirements we're going to face politically, internationally, and certainly consistent with what investors globally are looking for when they come to make decisions about where they deploy their capital. And many of your members do have all that um, money. They're spread across multiple countries and and they are making that choice, aren't they? They really are. Um, for example, John Martin, um, the new CEO of WinLab, who was you know, one of our members from the very beginning, uh, said to ABC Radio yesterday that they're deploying very significant amounts of funds in Africa and North America, uh, but they aren't in Australia. Uh, and there, you know, and so this, that really speaks to uh, the the problems that we see in the Australian market. And we say there are ways forward on addressing that, but we need to be we need to recognise that the process we're working through now in Australia is, in terms of the decarbonisation of the NEM, is a capital intensive business in a way that we have not really seen in the NEM since perhaps you know well well before the NEM existed uh, so we need we need to be able to pull capital in it needs to be low cost capital and that's only going to happen if investors can have a reasonable level of predictability around their revenues that they're not going to face unreasonable or undue constraints or curtailment or delays in getting connected all of those issues that many people on this listening to this podcast will be familiar with, but which are critical to whether or not you, you are able to achieve a final investment decision on a wind, solar or battery project. So it, it's interesting, sort of given um, your, your, your comments about the current investment, I'm looking to the future. Green hydrogen seems to be one of the big themes. I mean, Andrew Forrest is, is doing a lot of braggawats at the moment, um, talking about sort of deals here, there and everywhere, although we have yet to actually see any sort of a defined project. But still, that is the focus of the future. There's an awful lot of sand, uh, wind and, and solar developers looking at green hydrogen as a potential cause for their projects to be built and, and demand created. Um, Australia, though, as you point out, is competing internationally with green hydrogen money. Do we? What do we need to make sure that we don't miss out on that investment? Because um, it must be no different, I'm presuming, um, from the national electricity market, or, or is there subtle differences? Oh, I think it's a really good question, Giles. And uh, the first observation I'd make is that Enabling green hydrogen manufacture means enabling uh, renewable energy zone development, and that means enabling uh, high-quality firm access uh, to the transmission uh, networks. Uh, and without a clear regime that delivers firm access, not just within reses, which the states are very focused on, particularly most recently the New South Wales government, but uh, but also ensuring that there is a reasonable level of firm access um, in the broader NEM, because we still will see many projects built in the broader NEM, not just within reses. And indeed, 
policy documents like the New South Wales Roadmap assume a level of development in the broader NEM, not just within New South Wales reses. Uh, so we still need to get the transmission right if we're to enable um, green hydrogen manufacture because of the, 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 the very clear link between green hydrogen manufacture and the requirement for cheap, abundant wind and solar generation. So that, that's the first point I'd make. I think the second is, you know, we've got a, we've got a target uh, in terms of price per tonne that the, uh, the federal government has uh, set itself uh, to reduce uh, the cost of, of green hydrogen. And that's, that's a welcome policy setting from the federal government. But uh, there isn't uh, a strong financial uh, tool in place to incentivize that. Uh, we are now seeing the states starting to do that. For example, they're incentivizing development um, where if you, are, if you are building for green hydrogen, they're saying that they will provide a very significant rebate on uh, the, the uh, charge you have uh, to access the grid, your grid access uh, charges and so on. So that's, that's a very strong signal. But in other markets overseas, we're seeing... Uh, a very aggressive tax credit uh, arrangement, particularly in the US. And I think the real risk here uh, is that unless we get grid right and unless we have sufficient pool factors in place, all the talk about green hydrogen in Australia will be for nothing because other markets will have moved more quickly to capture those opportunities on the ground. And that, I think, is the fundamental risk and, and issue that we're facing. So we need more pull factors, uh, as well as streamlining the development of the infrastructure that enables green hydrogen, which is fundamentally better transmission. Yeah. And look, David has um, recovered and he's back and joining. So go ahead, David. Uh, thanks, uh, Simon. Look, I just quickly, we've, we've talked a lot about New South Wales. I noticed that Queensland also announced its first REZ uh, the other day up around Cairns uh, uh, for 500 megawatts. Of, uh, I just wondered how you felt uh, the attitude of the other states, not just in talking the talk, but in actually walking the walk besides New South Wales is, is, is what you're seeing. Yeah, well, I think certainly New South Wales has, has well and truly got out of the gate um, ahead of a number of the other jurisdictions. To be fair, Victoria uh, was in front of New South Wales with the VRET auction uh, process. Uh, but in terms of res development, uh, I think each state has different circumstances. Um, Victoria is always going to have uh, brownfield res development, you know, it's sort of coming in and filling in the, the, the gaps that already that are there rather than doing completely greenfield res development. So it's a very different environment in Victoria. So we can expect a different policy response there. But their announcements around VicGrid uh, and having a much more interventionist approach on the part of the state to drive the transmission augmentation that's required to create that brownfield res environment I think is really important. Um, that's going to potentially require a lot of capital and we haven't seen uh, enough detail, I think, yet in terms of the capital requirements that uh, Victoria will need around that. In Queensland, um, Queensland have, I think, still got some way to go to really frame out their res uh, framework and how they're going to operationalise res development. It's one thing to announce a res, it's another actually operationalise it and get it on the ground. 
Uh, and I know that there's a lot of work happening inside the uh, Queensland government and the uh, the department in in developing the policy framework. And I just trust that our the political leaders there really are uh, are giving sufficient weight to making sure that gets through in as timely a way as possible. Because we do need to see Queensland in particular matching New South Wales in terms of the breadth and pace of the of the uh, res framework for that jurisdiction um, because Queensland and New South Wales are really the two really significant growth markets for clean energy development if we are to see that decarbonisation by 2035 scenario achieved. That's right. And, uh, you know, we've uh, also got the aluminium smelters, one of each in Queensland and, and New South Wales, where Rio signalled uh, a different approach. And that has implications in Queensland for the uh, Gladstone power station. Uh, you know, Simon, uh, without being too political about it, how confident would you be as an investor about Queensland actually getting to its 50% target by 2030? They've got a, a lot of work to do for sure. They do have a lot of work to do, and I think um, the the time it's taken to get to where they're at in terms of res development, uh, res development frameworks um, has been slow, and we would certainly encourage the Queensland government to be moving more quickly. Um, so I think there is clearly uh, an imperative to do that because a lot of new development is going to be required in Queensland, um, and you make the point absolutely right about Boyne Smelter, uh, and the, the criticality of, of the decarbonisation task there. What's really welcome is that those commercial uh, interests like Rio are now really starting to shape and influence that debate uh, in a way that I think can be a real positive. But, yeah, I think much more work to be done in Queensland at this point. But, you know, we certainly encourage the, uh, the Queensland government to, to move as quickly as they can. And just on a point uh, before I hand back to Giles again quickly, the, the, the Clean Energy Investor Group and then we've got the CEC and we've got the Smart Energy Council. There's a lot of groups running around the place. Uh, you know, what, why do you guys exist uh, that the CEC or, or the Smart Energy Council wasn't actually doing? Well, we came together because investors felt there needed to be a clear and and focused voice for investors in the market. Our colleagues in the Clean Energy Council, our colleagues in the Smart Energy Council cover a much broader field. You know, the CEC covers not just investors, but they also cover OEM, EPC. Uh, they cover small-scale household installers, technology providers. So it's a much broader church, if you like. And uh, the Smart Energy Council equally much more focused on a lot of the, the household and uh, rooftop market and all the suppliers and installers that operate in that sector. So like any other sector of the economy, there are different voices to try and bring a different and particular focus. The Clean Energy Investor Group is the voice of capital. Uh, our members are only people who invest in and own clean energy assets and are bringing and deploying the low-cost capital needed for the transition. So that's our mission, uh, to make sure that governments and the market bodies hear the investor voice much more clearly uh, and much more consistently. Uh, and I've been really pleased with the level of support we've had from our members and from other companies who've joined us 
since we established ourselves as a, a standalone, independent and permanent industry voice for investors in the clean energy sector? Well, look, here's a question for um, for both of you, actually, and um, I'm interested to get your impressions. Um, Glasgow, um, we haven't quite seen the end result of Glasgow, but I think we've got a fair picture of where things are heading to. Um, Simon, you first, and then maybe David. Um, what's your impressions um, of what's being said, what's being done, and what it means? Well, look, I think, you know, it's, it's incremental rather than um, uh, a Paris-like moment, um, is it? But it's not Copenhagen either. So I think you know, that we are seeing uh, an outcome in Glasgow that perhaps lacks the, lacks the punch of, of a Paris outcome, but still sees some incremental progress. I think the most disappointing thing really has been that as a middle power, Australia has not been able to fully capitalise on its standing and, and the level of ambition that exists domestically with investors, with the community to address the challenge of global warming and respond to the economic and social consequences on it in a way that we're seeing happen right around our country. It's a pity that those things are not able to be communicated uh, through um, our national government at times, uh, but there have been some good and welcome developments. Uh, and uh, I trust, particularly with the announcement in the last 24 hours um, about the agreement between the US and China, um, that there's some additional momentum to get some critical discussions across the line before it wraps up at the end of this week. David? So, uh, well, I think you need to look at uh, in the Southeast Asian context more than anything. So, you know, uh, India, for instance, said that it was due 500 gigawatts of new renewables. And this is the trouble with trying to uh, understand how serious these countries are. Indonesia, the world's largest coal exporter, larger even than Australia, has said that it wants to uh, get rid of coal by 2040, but it's it clearly never going to do that unless it's uh, helped a lot. It just can't do it. Uh, Vietnam, uh, which is going to be one of the largest non-China uh, growth companies for coal, countries for coal, is, has signed up for 2040, as has South Korea, Australia's third, second or third largest company, uh, a customer, depending on how you, how you count. So those are, those are big announcements. But to me, and then you've got the surprising negative that Japan, I mean, I can understand in one sense why India, why um, Russia, uh, why China and Australia didn't sign up to ending coal. I mean, we are, we're big coal exporters, so you can understand the business lobby against it. You don't agree with it at all, but you can understand it. But why Japan, a coal customer, uh, an energy importer, isn't signing up is, is a complete mystery to me. So there's that side of things. Um, uh, other than that, uh, really, I think it's just a matter of we're gradually working towards it. But we all know uh, that, the, the, that if, everyone, if we keep these commitments, we're on track for, I don't know, two degrees, say, uh, what we don't really know is what two degrees will actually do to the world. That's one of the issues. And uh, we know that a lot more progress has got to be made and we can do it very cost effectively. We can all see that. Mm. What about electric vehicle policy? Um, the coalition government came out with its um, future fuel strategy, um, appropriately acronymed FFS. Um, Simon, um, um, yes, could you sort of um, hold either your laughter or your anger when you saw it? Well, I think the lessons still need to be learnt from the experience of the renewable energy sector where uh, t clear targets and clear mechanisms to pull forward demand delivered results. 
uh, and whether that's through the federal RET or whether that's through state-based reverse auction frameworks or similar procurement outcomes, the fact is that pool mechanisms have delivered results, brought down the cost of deployment, brought down um, the, the, the balance of plant costs that uh, were a challenge uh, less than a decade ago, particularly with solar. So we know what works and uh, we need to have a similar approach with electric vehicles. It is great that there's grant funding for a range of electric vehicle initiatives, but there still needs to be a, a mechanism that pulls forward demand um, through uh, economic measures of some sort mm -hmm. or taxation measures of some sort. Um, and that's really what's fundamentally missing. Um, and uh, I, I think uh, th that's pretty much the, the universal view from all the commentary I've seen. It's one thing to have a target, but it's another to say you're going to realise that target unless you've got a mechanism uh -huh. to achieve it. David, I'm interested in getting your David. Hang on, I'm interested in getting your view, but I do want to point out that Scott Morrison was not recharging a car there. He was actually refueling a hydrogen car um, from at, at the Toyota thing. So that, that was quite an interesting uh, yeah, juxtaposition. But anyway, your view on it? Oh, sorry, I didn't realise that. But it comes to the same thing. Look, my view is firstly, I would observe that in Australia, actually, we do tax oil quite and oil and petrol consumption pretty heavily. Uh, uh, so th there is that already. It's the equivalent of a carbon price. It's already in there on petrol. And just want to observe that in making these other points. It's very clearly in Australia's interest to decar to to move to electric vehicles. We import twenty, thirty billion dollars net basis each year of, of oil, and we could get rid of a lot of that. And you know, over ten years, that's three hundred billion dollars of imports that you could you could substantially reduce to the benefit of every, of every Australian. Uh, by moving towards EVs and taking advantage of our natural resources. The second thing is that no matter what policy you put in place right at this very short-term moment, it won't make any difference because the, the industry is totally supply-constrained. Uh, you can't produce enough electric vehicles. The third thing is Australia doesn't get any electric vehicles because they go to Europe largely because Europe has these emission standards that essentially force manufacturers to sell uh, uh, some EVs there or, or they can't sell any cars at all. So uh, we need that. It's not just a long-term target. We need, uh, you know, a good government policy would, would be a carbon tax, quite frankly, but uh, that's or carbon price. That's that's every economist will say the same thing essentially. If you can't have that, then you need a a, a policy of where you want to get to a penetration rate, uh, a target, uh, that, and and some uh, way of achieving it. You know, like uh, uh, and, and there are a variety of mechanisms that Simon's described. Mm. Just a final wrap-up before we get going. Um, just a couple of observations about what's happened in the last week. David, I don't know whether you've got any particular things that you want to mention. I just wanted to point out some of the sort of the more records keep on tumbling around the grid, um, particularly in South Australia, where we actually had the negative demand in South Australia. Well, yes, Giles, and, and I think the thing about the negative demand is 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 the fact that the grid can actually, the network can actually manage it. Uh, bullshit to all these solar export taxes, so forth, or that you know that networks can't manage a lot of solar. Clearly, they can manage a negative uh, flow through the whole thing, make the river flow backwards. <laughs> very good, uh, Simon. Do you like to add to that? Uh, I think uh, I think Dave has been very comprehensive in his answer. <laughs> Very good. David, anything else to add before we wrap up for the day? Uh, no, that's it, Giles. That's it. 
Well, Simon, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders once more and sort of good luck. And um, hopefully we'll find a way to sort of crack open that um, that planning scenario and get it sort of ratcheted up to the uh, to the step change or this new sort of hydrogen superpower. Um, we're heading that direction. Um, as you as you point out, we should be planning accordingly. Absolutely. And uh, thanks very much for having me, Giles and David. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. Uh, thanks, Simon. Look- and don't hang up right now because I'm just going to say thank you very much to um, not just Simon and David, but um, our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon, um, for your ongoing continued support. And thanks to everybody out there also for listening in. Um, a pretty good Solar Insiders podcast um, earlier this week too. And we also did a Driven podcast with Bill Shorten, um, which was wonderfully timed because Bill Shorten, of course, was uh, one of the architects of the policies that Labor brought to the election last time, ridiculed by the Morrison government. And Bill Shorten's actually been quite instrumental in actually changing the rules around what sort of cars the parliament MPs in federal parliament can get for the ministerial or parliamentary duties. And he was the first to actually get a electric vehicle and he's gone out and bought a Tesla Model 3. So it's interesting to hear his views on that and um, on, um, on Morrison's EVs policy. So thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back again next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.